This is Undisciplined. I'm LSG Lin, burrowing owls. They're small, some say grumpy looking owls that live in burrows originally made by ground squirrels or prairie dogs. They're the only owl in North America that lives underground. But because of this unique behavior, they're easily disturbed, especially by human development. Unfortunately, burrowing owls tend to live in areas that overlap with urbanization, and with that comes a lot of construction. When construction begins, these birds are often displaced from their homes. So there have been many efforts to try to relocate displaced burrowing owls and put them into new areas, but the relocation efforts weren't always a success. So a group of researchers from agencies and nonprofits teamed up to look at dispersal rates after birds have been relocated and determine what makes them leave or what might make them stay. Dr. Sarah Hennessy is a biologist with the U.S. Forest Service, where she researches conservation of a wide array of species facing habitat loss all over California. I'm excited to be talking about this with you today. I thought we could start out just talking about um, burrowing owls in general. So maybe you can kind of give a little bit of a, a background on them and their ecology and, and kind of why they were the study um, species for this, this work. Burrowing owls are a small owl. They are the only owl who lives in a hole in the ground. And to make their ecology a little more complicated, they don't generally create the burrows themselves. They rely on another animal, a burrowing mammal usually, to dig the holes for them. Depending on where you are in, in their, their range, they associate with different burrowing mammals. But in Southern California, where I am, they associate with the California ground squirrel. Um, in other places, they associate with badgers and prairie dogs and, <laughs> you know, whoever they need to. Yeah, so they're really reliant upon those burrowing mammals to, to dig their, their burrows for them at first. Using the word reliant is, is the right word. And so when you're trying to, to work on burrowing owl conservation, you're not just working with the owl. It's a two-species system at a minimum. Um, and what we found here is that uh, California ground squirrel was, has not been valued historically. The, the squirrel was poisoned and trapped out of a lot of places uh, when lands were converted to agriculture and pasture. Uh, and so that is, that's part of the issue here. Um, but another part of the issue is... Um, that the burrowing owl is found in our grasslands. Uh, they prefer flat areas with, uh, with low grass. They don't, they don't like areas where the vegetation is too tall or too dense uh, because it makes it more difficult for them to hunt and detect predators. Um, historically, you found more burrowing owls in this area along the coast uh, but then as neighborhoods were built up and our cities grew, then the burrowing owl was, was pushed inland. Um, and now at the current time, we are facing an, an actual housing crisis. So um, human communities are pretty desperate to, to develop areas for more housing. And then in, in addition, we've got huge warehouses um, going in to help support the home delivery industry. Uh, in some places, we've got agricultural fields being converted to large solar arrays. So the, the burrowing owls, the squirrels, and a lot of other animals have been losing many acres of habitat. You had mentioned 
a little bit ago about the the kind of reliance of burrowing owls upon some of these other burrow building mammals. Um, California, the ground squirrel, here in Utah, prairie dogs and, and badgers. Um, how does this reliance, does this reliance, I guess, that burrowing owls have on these other burrowing mammals come into play in mitigation efforts or in addressing uh, their conservation? Are these other mammals kind of included in the conservation planning process? Often they're not, but, but they are a critical piece. Um, often we're managing, even our conservation efforts are for one species or another. And so this is a situation where it's important to be working with two species at the same time. When we started working with the burrowing owl, uh, the most frequent kind of conservation effort done for these owls is humans create artificial burrows and install them into the ground. Uh, and these are made out of a wooden box or an irrigation box that's been buried and it has often plastic tunnels running to it. Uh, and the owls will use them. This kind of setup though, it, it requires maintenance. You have to dig out the tunnels pretty much every year um, because they do get, they do get clogged. Um, and these burrows don't last forever. So if you really wanted a self-sustaining, more natural kind of habitat for burrowing owls, um, it just makes a lot more sense to be working with their burrowing mammal species. You kind of mentioned this, or the start of the paper kind of talks about this. Um, mitigation is often thought of in terms of an animal or a habitat, and they're not often taken, both aren't often taken into account. Can you maybe talk about some of the, the problems that this presents? You could say generally, or in the case of the burrowing owl, some of these, the limitations of this kind of two, two component approach. Very frequently, the, the focus, and this, this is for many species as well, the focus is on moving an individual out of harm's way, moving an individual out of a site that's about to become a construction site. That approach doesn't address habitat loss. Um, it doesn't even address the ability of that animal to survive and reproduce in the long term. And that's what you need. If, you, if what you're trying to do is to conserve a population and make it possible for, uh, for these individuals to survive and reproduce on their own into the future. Um, and so if you're, if you're completely focused on moving one individual out of harm's way, maybe you've solved the problem for right now. But if that individual is in a new site and, and doesn't make it in the new site, if they aren't able to establish, if there's a mortality event, then that work that you did to move the individual is lost anyway. So specifically for burrowing owls, in California, the most frequent practice in these situations has been to block, you make sure the owl has left the burrow and then you block the burrow. Uh, and that forces the owl to relocate itself. This is called passive relocation. It's more of an eviction. And once the burrow has been blocked, the owl has left the area, then that burrow is destroyed deliberately so that the owl can't return. 
Then you have uh, an owl on, out on the landscape and they are, they're looking for a new place to settle. And maybe they're able to find a burrow nearby uh, and they're able to settle relatively easily. Maybe they're able to stay in a known area. Um, but if they're not able to find a new burrow close by, then they have to disperse and they may end up dispersing a long distance, especially once they get into unfamiliar terrain. And there's probably a whole suite of challenges that comes along with that dispersal process. If there's not viable habitat nearby or just the energy involved in trying to get to a new habitat, I would imagine kind of weighs heavily on their survival. We're, so this is kind of this displacement option. And then there's also translocation. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about what's involved in translocation and, and maybe some of the ways that, that it, it can go wrong. Or, or can go right? The other option uh, is it may be possible to capture individuals and to deliberately move them carefully to a new place. And this would be uh, an area that's at some distance from the home range, so it's going to be unfamiliar to them, but maybe it's one of these protected open lands and maybe it's a place that is being actively managed by a wildlife agency for wildlife habitat. So the benefit of that approach is that it could um, guarantee the safety of that individual more completely into, into the future. Um, but some of the, the drawbacks are that it hasn't, this kind of approach hasn't been used as much in the past and not as much is known about it. And wildlife agencies Wildlife agencies have been uh, a little unwilling to use this approach until they have enough information to feel confident that when they go to the, the, the effort to move individuals from one place to another, uh, that it's gonna be successful and that the individuals are going to survive. So in this research, one of the ways that um, you were able to kind of ensure that individuals survived or, or chose to stay in those translocated areas was by convincing owls that that conspecifics were already there with these, this term conspecific cues. Um, so maybe you can talk a little bit about that and, and how you created those cues. When you're moving an individual to an unfamiliar place, they, they don't have a sense of whether that habitat is particularly good or bad for them. They can't, they can't guess that. Um, but these are, these are sentient thinking animals. And so there's a process of learning that's very important for them. And one of the ways that we think they learn uh, is by looking for other individuals of the same species to give them some information about, uh, are, any of, are there any other burrowing owls in this spot? Uh, if there are, then maybe this isn't such a bad place to be. Maybe those other owls are able to find enough food uh, and protect themselves from predators. Maybe there are other burrows here for me to occupy. If they're in unfamiliar terrain and there are no other signs of a burrowing owls, then maybe the conclusion that they come to is that this isn't good habitat. With these conspecific cues, how did you introduce them into these study sites to convince burrowing owls, hey, there are other owls here, this is a good place. 
to come and live or to stay and not fly away from? We tried a couple of different kinds of signaling. We tried um, audible cues, uh, which involved playing callbacks of different burrowing owl calls. They have a couple of different kinds of calls. We also, we also tried visual cues. And the visual cue that we used has to do with, with their excrement. Birds, it's not poop, it's their excrement. Uh, but it's opaque and white and kind of liquid. So it, it looks like splotches of white paint. For a burrowing owl, when they're occupying a burrow, if they're there for a while, the burrow, the outside of the burrow ends up decorated with these white spots. And that's a highly visual cue. That's easy to pick out and see. So we chose that as one of the ways that we thought that owls might communicate to each other that they were in habitat and successfully occupying it. So what did you use to mimic this, this uric acid excrement? <laughs> well, we had, uh, we got some syringes and filled them with non-toxic white paint and practiced just making a very naturalistic application of the white paint. <laughs> you found owls were 20 times more likely to settle at sites where they had these conspecific cues. In, in the game of science, that's a serious order of magnitude of likelihood of them staying in these areas. Um, so maybe you can talk a little bit about what you saw with these successful kind of translocations using those, those cues that you talked about. That is a very strong statistical effect. And it told us that, uh, that this was a really important part of the system, that it's, it's very important uh, when you're translocating owls to provide these kinds of cues uh, to help them make the decision to stay rather than to disperse. And that's the most, that's the most critical decision because if they disperse, if they leave the protected area, maybe they find a burrow, maybe they don't, um, maybe they find a mate, maybe they don't, but by moving groups of owls to a protected place, uh, then we were able to track them through the breeding season and beyond. And we found that they, they settled, they paired up during the breeding season, they lay eggs, um, the chicks, you know, some of the chicks survived and then we tracked them into a second year um, and, our new populations continued. So the indications that we had from this study were that if you could get past that initial disruption, the translocation, then chances were pretty good that your new population would get established and would survive um, for more than one for more than one year. Is there are these habitat patches you kind of mentioned earlier? Some of these like protected lands by various agencies or organizations, are they in close enough proximity to one another that owls from this maybe originally successful translocated group could disperse to those places? I can start with an example. In San Diego County, we have been trying to create um, over the, the 10 or 12 years of this project, we've been working towards 
creating a connected network like what you're describing. Uh, we started with just one natural population. Uh, that's why people in this area were so alarmed. We were down to one established population of burrowing owls. So first we focused on creating a second one. And now the project has moved on to establishing a third um, population. We've been calling them nodes. Uh, and we've got another potential spot that, that potentially in the future could be node number four. And we think that the owls are mobile enough that there's a fairly good likelihood that these populations will be connected um, and that the owls will have some ability to find each other um, on the landscape going forward. This has been uh, a, real, a real success story. This is a collaborative conservation effort that has uh, been able to, people have been able to work together, the funding has been there, and we've made great strides as a result. It's been a really good outcome so far. So is there any, any I guess the next step right now is probably establishing that fourth node, like you mentioned, and then where do you see this going past that? I mean, are there, I'm sure not limitless node opportunities, but additional habitat patches, um, additional habitat restoration efforts to create more options for the birds to go to? What do you see as kind of the next steps for this? So we started just working in San Diego County, but, but really the impacts are being felt all across Southern California, especially in the, the, the inland valleys. So the most logical place for the project to expand is north up into um, our neighboring counties. So that's Riverside and San Bernardino. Then the project becomes much more collaborative. You've got more partners, um, more landowners and the ability to collaborate and to work effectively together um, is becomes very important. Yeah, I think that widespread collaboration is so important for most conservation success stories that we hear to, to be as successful as they are. The partners that we work with, one of the questions they ask the most frequently is, so how many of these nodes do we need to build? And that's a good question. Historically, when uh, grassland systems were much, uh, were much larger, they were connected across the landscape, there were lots of subpopulations that were more or less connected. Now that we're in this situation of, well, how low can you go? <laughs> that's, that's a hard question to answer. So we have made some attempts, some efforts to do some simulation modeling to help answer that question of, of how many. But realistically, the answer to that question is going to be, well, try to make as many nodes as you can to, to give yourself the best chance of uh, giving this species room to grow into the future. Yeah, I'm sure there's no such thing as too many nodes. When burrowing owl researchers talk, they, they are comparing, well, you know, what have you seen in Texas? What have you seen in Florida? What have you seen uh, in the Great Plains states? And 
across the entire range, populations have been declining. So there isn't a safe place where, where the owls are going. They're, they're simply dropping a number. And we would like to, to put a floor beneath their feet. Have you heard from some of these other groups? Because burrowing owls are so widespread. I mean, I, I can think of them in Wyoming and Utah and Idaho, a lot of places where our listeners are. Um, have you been approached by other regional areas with burrowing owls to implement these same strategies that you've had so much success with in San Diego County? We do our best to communicate uh, with the researchers and with the managers from other locations and doing uh, communication like the scientific study that we published and doing some outreach through professional networks, but also doing outreach through public networks helps us connect with uh, other managers who are, who are needing information about what to do about their burrowing owl populations. Is there additional work being done or efforts being made to better incorporate the conservation of the burrow building mammals that these owls rely on for burrows? In the initial phase of this project, we did focus quite a bit on California ground squirrel and the, the work with the ground squirrel that we did ranged from working with resident populations to see if we could encourage them to grow into adjacent locations. We also made some efforts to actively translocate ground squirrels from landowners who didn't want them to some of our protected lands. What we found with ground squirrels was that they're surprisingly finicky and uh, and they also make decisions about whether to stay or whether to go. So in the course of our work with ground squirrels, we didn't come up with a, a gold standard of how to encourage them to settle and persist in the long term for the California ground squirrel was to identify locations where there was a resident squirrel population and then to encourage them to move outwards, to, to encourage them to cover uh, adjacent areas with burrows as well to provide more habitat for, for burrowing owls. Yeah. So having to take into account all of these different habitat preferences of these different organism, organisms to, to get everybody using these areas. It's an interesting thing to be thinking about on the broader scale of the ecosystem kind of as a whole. The payoff is that if you figure it out and you do it well, then you have a population that maybe doesn't need to be supported by human effort um, into the future. Maybe you have managed to create a population or create a community that is natural enough that it can keep itself going into the future. And that, that's really what you're trying to do. Yeah, that's the absolute end goal. Are you seeing that at all with the first node of burrowing owls that you established in the beginning of this study? That was beginning to happen with the first node. We uh, made efforts to encourage the squirrels to move into adjoining habitat areas. Uh, we worked to move owls into those areas. The owls established, they reproduced, 
Uh, they came back the following year, they paired up and reproduced again. Um, the, the first node uh, was going strong. That's awesome. Yeah, I was so excited when I came across this paper and I, I had to reread it a couple of times, like 20 times more likely to settle in these areas just with that introduction of the conspecific cues. And it's nice to see conservation success stories like this. In, in these kind of shorter time spans with, with effort made that's, that's so collaborative too. It also gave me uh, a great mental picture of what successful conservation looks like. And let me, it, it gave me the experience to know that that's how conservation can and should be. And we are able to do that. And we can help these species. So all conservation stories are not gloom and doom. When we focus and we're, we put effort into it, uh, we can have some pretty wonderful successes. I love that. And I will end this on, on that message of hope. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and talk about this research. Um, it was great to get to go over it all. Thank you so much. That's Sarah Hennessy. She's a biologist at the U.S. Forest Service, and her latest study was recently published in Animal Conservation. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, with support from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Ellis Julin. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.